Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Academy of American Poets, Atlas Free, Blue Star Families. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charities, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBGive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. This is the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBGive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports in the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. You know, there's a lot that charities are doing nowadays with social media. And social media takes on many forms. There are platforms that we use primarily for just kind of introducing our personal selves to people. There are platforms that we use just to have fun. There are platforms that we use to kind of stay engaged or connected with people that we haven't seen in a while, just to keep connected with their lives. Platforms that can be sometimes more intrusive than we want them to be in our personal lives. And then there's kind of LinkedIn. LinkedIn, I kind of put in a slightly different category than your normal social media platforms, because I think most of us have adapted to this culture within LinkedIn, which is you kind of post stuff related to work. And if there is something that is personal, which we all integrate work in our personal lives in some way, we will try to make sure that whatever we put in from a personal standpoint also has something connected to work. So I'm I'm just fascinated by how LinkedIn has been able to maintain that culture and how for many it's kind of the go-to platform for professionals. Well, you know, my whole interest is in how nonprofits can thrive on all kinds of platforms. And I'm especially interested now in this whole LinkedIn thing because it feels like it's growing to me. I see people that I really care about in a professional space there and there's a lot of activity. So I had the serendipitous opportunity to connect with a gentleman who knows a little bit about that, I would say. He is Joey Zamaya, and he is the leader of LinkedIn for Charities, or LinkedIn for Nonprofits, I think he calls it. And Joey is here to help us navigate LinkedIn and also tell us about his company, the Zamaya Group, because it does work with nonprofits, and his personal life, which is really fascinating, that has kind of led him to the world and the work that he's doing today. I'd also say 
the serendipity that led me to meet Joey is that he is my mentor on the National Advisory Board of the Salvation Army. And so my mentor is this guy who happens to connect with LinkedIn in a significant way. And as soon as I heard that, you know, to all of you who are listening, I had to get him on the show to share that insight (laughs) with all of you. So Joey, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast and thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. And it's been uh, equally fascinating and fun to get to know you and your background and what you're about. So it's a pleasure to to be with you. Well, Joey, let's talk about your background. Let's figure this whole path out that you've traveled on now to lead you to where you are today. Give me a little insight about where you originated and and how you're here. Depending on how far back you want to go, I'll give my best try at a first stab just to connect some dots and, and give some color on how I ended up to where I'm at today. So born and raised in Santa Barbara, California, which is a popular area where I like a lot of celebrities like to come live because of the year-round room temperature weather. My family's been here for over 200 years. So my ancestor was one of the people that was instrumental in building the network of missions up uh, when California was still Mexico in the 1700s. And so we've been here for a really long time. And although you would think that we had a lot of means because my family's been here for so long, like a lot of other families, we had our ups and downs, which at the age of 14 resulted in my family having to move into a homeless shelter in Santa Barbara because we were going through a rough patch and we needed to find a place to land back on our feet. And that was my first introduction to the Salvation Army. We needed a place to to land for about five months while we reestablished our lives and figured out our path forward. And so it was the Salvation Army who took us in. When I was 14 years old, we stayed there for about six months and the generosity that they displayed to my family and the dignity in which they treated us while we were there forever made an impression on me that motivated me to ultimately make my way back to the Salvation Army when I found some success in my career and was motivated to, to try to do things to help people like the ones who were helping me at that uh, really important inflection point in my life. So that's, that's where I'm from. That's part of my journey. And that's how I got to meet the Salvation Army in the first place. Fantastic. What are you doing at the Salvation Army? What have you done? You've done some really amazing work. Let's, let's expose that a little bit. So over the last 10 years, starting with me joining a local advisory board here where I am from, that, that was my first motivation to serve is how can I support the work that's being done locally in my own community to help uh, homeless people, people who are marginalized and facing different challenges. For a while, I, I wasn't sure kind of when, in my, when I was in my early 30s, I'm 43 years old now, going on 70, but 43 years old now. When I started maturing and finding some success in my career, I wasn't sure if I wanted to just be a volunteer or or just have this as something that I do outside of work. I quickly learned where I felt like I provided value was at the board level, kind of marrying the best of what I learned in business and also my desire to make impact externally. So I started out as a local board member and one thing turned into another and I continued to, while advancing at LinkedIn, Uh, advancing at the board ranks of the Salvation Army. And so over the last decade, I've done a number of different things ranging from just being a local volunteer, handing out food boxes, which is 
for the record, my favorite work I bet. Uh, outside of board service to ultimately end up serving on the national advisory board, which I, I get to serve alongside people like you. And currently I'm focused on helping to revisit the strategic planning process of the Salvation Army throughout the United States, which is, I think, one of the highest honors and privilege uh, privileges that you can have for an, or, or an organization that's been around for so long. One of the things I often share about the Salvation Army is that Booz Allen Hamilton did a study in 2004 about the top or most enduring institutions of all time. Four of these institutions are the American Constitution, the Olympic Games, the Rolling Stones, and the Salvation Army. These are all institutions that have stood the test of time. So to be a part of an organization that's been around for so long and that has made so much impact is, is definitely humbling. Well, what is so heartwarming, really, and inspiring is that you came back to an organization that obviously meant something to you in your upbringing. You know, here you are, you started out, you connected with them when you were homeless, a homeless child. And now you're leading the strategic planning work <laughs> for the National Advisory Board of the Salvation Army. That is inspiring, Joey. It's inspiring. And I just want to make sure people understand that the Salvation Army has a program in every zip code in this country and around the world, right? And count around the world. So for a homeless kid to rise up, it says a lot about, obviously, the Salvation Army and it's having a place for a young man like you and your family who were going through something. But it says something also about the potential of this country to support and provide opportunity for people, regardless of what their backgrounds is. Now, I know we still have many problems in this country, Joe, and, and believe me, I live those problems and I'm sure you do too. But to be able to move that way as you have is a testament to the good things that can come out of living in this country. And it's easy to point out the bad things. I'm, I'm always wanting to point out the bad things, things that need to change. There's a million things that need to change. But every so often we see a story like yours and we need to hold that up too. So I just want to do that. So, Joey, listen, tell me about the work you're doing at LinkedIn. I'm really interested in that because charities are always strapped one way or another. We don't have enough money. We don't have the right people. We can't get enough volunteers. Sometimes we can't even find the people we're trying to help. <laughs> we can't get enough publicity. We are full of can't get enough ofs. But here we go. We try to do our work. So when I come across a person like you who is in a position to really share some vital information about LinkedIn, which is, as I said, a major platform, I really want them to benefit from that. How are charities using LinkedIn? How can they use LinkedIn? And maybe what should they look somewhere else to do rather than LinkedIn? if they're trying to get something done? What's your perspective on those questions? It's, it's a great question. And to paint a more 
effective picture of why I think LinkedIn is so relevant for nonprofits. I'll even zoom out a little bit and, and share some context on, on why I think this is such an important question. You know, for better or for worse, it is an, a fascinating time to be a nonprofit right now. More than ever, technology, including artificial intelligence, uh, donor behaviors, generational representation shifting so dramatically is, is really making things go faster than they've ever gone before. And before these things were happening, it was hard enough for a nonprofit and a nonprofit leader to navigate these things and continue to stay relevant and effective and efficient. Now it's even that much harder. So the thing I love about LinkedIn is our vision is to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. That's verbatim what our, our vision is. We love to emphasize the word every in that vision statement, put it in bold, because it's not just white collar professionals or big tech firms that we want to be a part of creating economic opportunity for. It's the people that come from underrepresented backgrounds. It, it includes organizations that are doing good in the world. So LinkedIn for nonprofits, which is the part of the company that really focuses on helping nonprofits be successful on our platform, whether they're hiring talent, whether they're branding their mission or their vision, or whether they're using it to connect with donors and fundraise. We feel like our part of LinkedIn is closest to our vision that we have of creating economic opportunity for every member. So I feel like I have a, the dream job in a sense where I get to have the best of both worlds. On one hand, I get to work for an organization like LinkedIn. Going back to my bio, one of the things that I share about myself that floor people is I do not have a college degree. I don't even have a, an associate's degree. So to be able to come to a company like LinkedIn that has created an environment of inclusion and giving everybody a chance to be successful based on their skills, not just their degree, is amazing. But to also be able to combine that with using our platform and using our tools to help organizations and people that are doing in the good in the world, I'm not sure I'll ever have a better opportunity to do cool stuff like that for the rest of my life. So that kind of like a foundation that I always use to describe why I think this part of LinkedIn is so special. But a bit more about what's going on in the platform that I think is, is super important and relevant for nonprofit leaders to understand. So LinkedIn is one of the fastest growing platforms in the world. Every second, three to four people create a new profile. That's how fast we're growing right now. And we just passed a billion users a few months ago. So the growth that we're seeing, I think, is driven by two reasons. Number one, we are a professional network. And so everything that we do, every product that we create, feature we roll out, decision we make has to be based on the trust of our members. If and when we ever lose the trust of our members, we lose everything because we're a professional network. One example of how we live that out that I love to share is that we do not allow political ads to be ran on our platform because that brings too much risk to uh, that trust that we talk about. So that's why a lot of people are coming to LinkedIn in droves. And then the second reason you cited it when we started this podcast, you're starting to see the nature of the content and the ways that people engage be that of a positive and productive nature. And in today's environment, positiveness and productivity are things that are lacking and in big demand. So I think that's been a, a big part of the reason 
why LinkedIn is growing so much and, and such a go-to tool for so many professionals around the world. Great. So let's get into some ways organizations can use it effectively. I post on LinkedIn, I would say moderately regularly. And there are times when my content gets, for me, a significant amount of response from people who follow me. And there are other times when, you know, it doesn't get so much and that's okay. But is there a type of content? Because I guess there's always algorithms behind how all this is done. But is there a type of content that the platform prefers and will share? Or maybe you could tell me just how the algorithm works to some extent. So people can better understand how best to utilize it. I mean, don't put something on there that's not going to get any lift. You're wasting your time. Yeah. But if you want to work with the algorithm, how would we go about doing that? Good question. I would first start off by sharing that we have created an online tool that we call the uh, LinkedIn for Nonprofits Resources Hub. Mm -hmm. It's available at nonprofit.linkedin.com. It's a free tool that we used to really hold the hand of a nonprofit and understanding not only everything it can do on LinkedIn, but actually how to do it. So I love this tool because you can go look at it on your own schedule at your own pace and really go to all the resources and it'll walk you through either creating your own profile as an individual so that you can project and brand yourself the way you want all the way up to creating the company page for your nonprofit and how to build a following, et cetera. So that's an incredibly helpful tool that I think would do a much better job of getting you up and running on LinkedIn than I would ever be able to describe. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned content and coming back to that, what we see on our platform is that the content that drives the most amount of engagement is content that we refer to as humanized content. So th this is speaking directly to human nature and the kind of things that get and keep our attention which is if you oversimplify it, the heart of a really good content strategy. A lot of people unfortunately think that posting old stale images or just copying and pasting text and having a, what I call a spray and pray content strategy, let's just, just put a bunch of stuff out there as often as we can with no rhyme or reason and really hope that it works out. That's really not going to get the kind of engagement that you're really looking for. Whereas the type of content that we see getting the most amount of engagement and virality is ones where there's real people, real names, real faces, real stories, and brands and individuals are authentically posting and putting content out there, especially in today's environment where so much of the content that we consume is questionable and untrustworthy. On LinkedIn, when you see people talking about their careers or talking about their, their causes, in a way that's authentic, it brings us in. And the behaviors that it evokes, whether we slow a post down on the feed and pay a little bit more attention to it and that kind of sends a message out to the platform that this is valuable for someone, or whether it's just someone talking on video for 30 seconds to a minute, not 10 minutes, little pro tip there, it just makes us want to learn more, especially when there's a setting where the video might be on mute by default. So authentic, humanized content that really highlights the human aspects of our careers, of all the organizations that we work for, the journeys that we're on, 
that's what we see get the most amount of traction on LinkedIn for for obvious reasons. Wow. So say more about authentic. When you say authentic, what does that actually mean, especially from a brand standpoint? So for instance, if I post with my organization's from my organization's account, is that different than me posting as the head of the organization from my own account? Yeah, it it is. When it comes to content strategy, I use the old adage of there's a time and a place for everything. And, And just really being thoughtful about the tone that you're trying to strike and the audience that you're trying to build. Those are two questions I think that are operative questions as you think about building a presence and an audience on LinkedIn. You know, what are you really trying to achieve? is the question. Mm -hmm. And then is this content, this piece of content or this content strategy, a means to that end? So just using the Salvation Army as an example on LinkedIn, because I'm most familiar with with where they've gone. When I first joined the board, obviously, first place I went was on LinkedIn to see how this Salvation Army was showing up. And the organization has been around for so long and is so well known that there was a decent following to the national page. But I noticed that amount of content that was being posted and the cadence of that, that content was hit or miss. And there really wasn't any rhyme or reason. So foundationally, we got them up and running to make sure that the pages were dialed in and all the information, if someone were to go visit the page, was there. But then we graduated to like, what is the message that we really want to send to the professional world on LinkedIn about the Salvation Army? And where we landed was a lot of video content that highlighted the national commander, Commissioner Ken Hodder, and about what he was speaking to from a thought leadership standpoint that ranged from things like, hey, we are down here in the deep south where we are responding to natural disasters and we are literally handing food to people that don't have anything else to eat or anywhere else to go. And showing that work that was being done real time and bringing awareness to that and giving people an opportunity to give all the way over to, hey, we're at Capitol Hill today with our National Advisory Board members, and we are advocating for policy that is going to help the largest non-government social services provider in the world continue to do more of the work that it does today. So when you're showing, again, the names and the faces and the stories of both the people that you're helping, in addition to the people that are helping you reach those people, that's, I think, what, what really connects with people and what makes them want to learn more. So just using the Salvation Army as an example and how they've been able to grow their following to over 100,000 people in a relatively short amount of time, I think validates everything that I just covered. And now it's time for our Giving Tips segment with Bennett Weiner, one of the world's most renowned experts on charity accountability and the COO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. Today, I'd like to talk about one of the voluntary standards that we use in evaluating charities that deals with the accuracy of charity communications. And the standard that I want to focus on calls for solicitations and informational materials distributed by any means by the charity to be accurate, truthful, and not misleading, both in whole and in part. Let me break down what we mean by that standard. When I say accuracy, I'm referring to the facts and figures included in a solicitation or a website, such as the number of people helped by the charity, maybe financial information that is referenced, 
and how many people are afflicted with a particular disease. Those are facts that can be checked, and uh, hopefully the organizations will ensure that they are accurate, truthful. That's a little bit different. Here we're talking about whether the charity says something that it knows not to be true. For example, maybe exaggerating the financial need within the organization, claiming that uh, they're in dire straits, where if you look at the financial statements, they may not demonstrate that. And or maybe exaggerating the impact of their programs in terms of what their claims are, in terms of their accomplishments. And the third leg of this stool it deals with misleading. And that's a situation where a statement appears in an appeal that may be technically accurate, but taken together throughout the entire appeal may somehow potentially mislead to donors, be misleading, and give a misleading impression to them. So an example of that, let's say a charity is focusing on the cancer research that it says it's doing and you know, all, all this wonderful stuff that they are in the appeal, when in fact the cancer research program is only a very small part of what they do, but their main activity is really in treatment advocacy. And they're giving a misleading impression about what the organization does by just focusing on a small part without indicating that that's the case for the organization. So the point I'm trying to make is sometimes these communications can provide problem situations. And it doesn't have to be that every single sentence is untrue or inaccurate. It could be some part of it is that creates a problem. Now, there are different types of problems. Bottom line, it's important for organizations to ensure that their solicitations are above board. And the best way to accomplish that is to make sure that there are people who are second-checking communications before they're finalized to ensure there isn't any concern in terms of what the public is providing. Well, you know, I have this thing called the Heart of Giving podcast. And one of the things I do, most people won't know this because you're not a part of this part of it, but I try to send a note out to every guest who has been on the show and some friends of the show every week. Usually, lately, it's been Sunday evening. I'll write a note, and it usually talks about the last episode or what's going to happen in the next episode, introduces the new person that we've added to the group, and some things that I may have seen in the environment that I think many of these social good leaders might want to know about or something that features a previous guest in a good way, right? So we put that out. But you know, Joey, I've always had this sense that there's so much we could be doing with this group because they are all people who are interested in seeing the world evolve in a positive way in some way, yeah? And so I don't quite know how to engage them and I know maybe you have some ideas for that. So we could like game this out real time on the show. But we've had over 180 episodes of this show since we started it. Wow. Every week. So remarkable. And we haven't missed a week. And I just feel that I'm leaving some opportunity on the table to connect with this group. And they know it. I mean, I've had a lot of great feedback from people who basically say, I love the messages that you send out, love the podcast, all that. And some who really want to figure out how to connect 
But there's no visible way that I can think of to do it other right now than through the emails, which they all say they like. Even when I say to them, if you don't want to be a part of this, let me know. I'll take you out. People say, no, no, no. Keep me in. (laughs) (laughs) So it's that is working to some extent. But I just feel like there's so much more we could do. How might LinkedIn, for instance, help with a group like that, help to connect and to energize and, and animate? a group like that in a way that could maybe do more than we are currently doing. So before I speak to that, I want to give you some kudos because one, I've been on the receiving end of this email that you're referencing. I think it's really good stuff. Thank you. So, so also don't, don't take me off. I would would (laughs) echo, echo that statement. And two, more importantly, you're doing what I argue all of us need to do more of, which is building communities. Right now, we have enough things tearing us apart and and having us divided. It's things like this that bring us together. So I'm grateful for your leadership. And the fact that you haven't missed an episode in that many weeks is remarkable. It kind of speaks to your rigor, which I also commend you for. Thank you. In terms of how LinkedIn can play a role in helping to facilitate these types of communities and conversations within it and just how people stay connected over time. I'm a big fan of using our LinkedIn groups uh, function and capability. Mm-hmm. So for the record, we have a feature on LinkedIn called groups where you can create and organize a group of people that might belong to following or an, an association or, or any kind of group that you can think of. And there's a lot of flexibility in terms of how you can build the group, whether it's a private group and it's managed by inviting people and that's the only way that you can get into so invite only group or really more of an open group where everybody can join and contribute so depending on the culture of the group and the decorum that you want to establish for the group those settings are adjusted accordingly but creating the group is step one the good thing is a lot of people are coming to or are on linkedin so your likelihood of being able to reach them there Versus some other platforms where maybe their preference is like, maybe I don't want to tie my personal life and my personal business, whereas LinkedIn is really more of a professional context. Mm -hmm. Step one is creating the group. But if you're playing the long game and you really want this to be something that can grow and thrive, you have to be committed to managing the group and posting in the group and, and really making sure that people engage on the group, just like you would with any other platform. And as in the example of never missing a week on this podcast and, and the reason why it's so successful. So the LinkedIn group capability is something that I think you should view as playing the long game. Like in a year from now, in six months from now, this could be really good as long as we don't miss a step in terms of making sure that we continue to grow and cultivate this group and turn it into a go-to place where people want to connect with each other. And I love that you can we can connect people too because... One of the things that I think is so unique about this email exchange is that there are people in the group who I'm sure would want to connect with others, but they're so respectful of not doing that. You know, they just don't want to be the person who inappropriately reached out to somebody. So they don't do it. And and yet sometimes maybe they should. I mean, I've got some young people, for instance, who could really benefit from mentoring who are former podcast guests and they're doing terrific work, but they won't, they won't do it because they know 
maybe that's not cool to do that. They just respect what, what I'm trying to do and they don't do it. But maybe in a LinkedIn forum, they might feel a bit more comfortable doing that. Or maybe I could establish some rules around that. I guess that would let people feel comfortable. You know, you can reach out to anybody in this group. It's fair game to send a note. Just recognize that if you don't get any response, take it for what it is. But that's kind of an interesting way. Are there any other tools that you see that nonprofits might want to take advantage of with LinkedIn? Or I know that one of the things you pride yourselves on at LinkedIn is being able to connect people with work opportunities, with relationships that could lead to broader professional connections and things of that nature. How does that play out on LinkedIn for nonprofits as well? Because a lot of them, my friends, might be looking for good board members, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. And I just want to add one more comment on the group topic. Okay, sure. Uh, just because I think that you touched on something important. And, and again, I am a little biased here because I, I work at LinkedIn and there's that old quote that when all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And I love that that's true with LinkedIn uh, because right. of, of some of the things that we're doing in the world. You mentioned a hesitancy or maybe some risk on the optics of being part of a group and reaching out to other members and not really wanting to be disruptive or disrespectful. Right, right. With LinkedIn, because people are really trying to network and because their profiles are a, a professional representation of themselves, it's almost like being on LinkedIn and creating a group is a good forcing function to vet a lot of the risk that comes with building a community and whether people should connect with each other or not. So I love that on LinkedIn, you, you see just where people work and what their career journeys have been, not necessarily like what their home address is or what they ate for lunch. Right. So just right. in general, I think it's like default setting is it's incur not only like acceptable, but encouraged mm -hmm. for people to connect with each other because they're doing it within a professional context. Yeah. That's the one thing I would just add in terms of like why I think uh, groups is such a, a really good resource for communities like this and, and also nonprofits in particular. Moving on to some of the other things I think that are really helpful to nonprofits and, and what they should know about why they want to be engaging on LinkedIn. One of the reasons why we created the company that my wife and I founded, the Zumaya Group, is because there is a huge demand for nonprofits to become more capable of building their boards. And whether those boards are governing boards or advisory boards, there is no secret. It's, it's not a secret that nonprofits need the leaders from the communities in which they operate to be a part of that organization's strategy and success. If you don't have a connection to the communities in which you operate in, you're not going to be very successful as a nonprofit. Well, recruiting new members is one of the biggest challenges that nonprofits are facing with their boards. And so if I only share one thing to a nonprofit about why they want to be on LinkedIn and where they should start focusing their efforts, it's this. On LinkedIn, in every member's profile, we give them the ability to check one of two boxes, if not both. You can raise your hand by checking a box to say that you're interested in being either a nonprofit pro bono volunteer or you're interested in serving on a nonprofit board. And in your search filters, you can actually bring people up in the city that they work in, the company that they're with, and whether or not they have raised their hand for volunteering or nonprofit board service, literally giving an invitation for a nonprofit to reach out to them and say, this is who we are, this is what we're about, this is what we do, would you be interested? 
in joining our board and to start to facilitate that conversation. It is unfortunately one of the best kept secrets on our platform and probably one of the most underrated things that a nonprofit can do that it's not. So in addition to finding talent and having access to really good courses from LinkedIn Learning, the first thing and the free thing that a nonprofit can do is to start to build a pipeline of prospective board members that have raised their hand to support organizations like theirs. And for the people that have really made a science out of doing this, I've seen huge success and ROI for the time that's spent and something that I'll share with anyone and everyone who will listen. Well, we're definitely going to push that message out. In fact, I think what I'm going to do is take a clip of this video and post it on LinkedIn (laughs) so that everybody knows about that one thing, if nothing else. They hear anything else about the show, they're going to hear that. Because I think you kind of did it like within a minute or so. So Yeah, yeah, I got the pitch down for sure. We could even include the link that'll take you directly to the part of the hub that walks you to doing that. So actually, I was going to ask about links. So links in this in LinkedIn, do the algorithms worry that you're going to take people away from LinkedIn when you click on the link and maybe not give as much attention to things that have links in them? Or does it not matter? You know, there's always an ongoing thought process about optimizing the the member experience and and mm-hmm. what drives the most amount amount of engagement. I don't think LinkedIn's an exception to that. Yeah. However, where we invest most heavily is making sure that our members feel like LinkedIn is a trusted place to be. If you look at some of the investments that we've made including the ability for members to verify their identity through some of the authentication options that we've built into the platform mm-hmm. to prove that these are real people with real careers and not bad actors. That's where all of our resources are being invested to make sure, be, again, because we are anchored on trust and we want LinkedIn to be a trusted place to be, we really worry more about do our members feel like this is a place where they can come and engage and, and be their authentic selves and be safe versus do we think that we're going to get more or less engagement by using a link? That's the first thing I always share just for context. But to answer your question directly, we really format the fields of how you post and how your profile is built to create a continuous, non-disrupted experience. And so if you look at all the different fields that you can choose from when you create a post, it's really anchored on two things. Is this a really good experience for the member? making it the information that's presented digestible, et cetera. And number two, is it inclusive? Is this something that's going to include everybody, no matter of what their limitations might be? My favorite example being when you post a video, by default, we build in the capability for you to have closed captions. It's turned on. So if someone is in a position to necessarily hear them, they could read along with those. So it's really anchored more on the experience and the trust of the platform versus like, how can we just drive the most amount of engagement? Well, Joey, you know, we're coming to the end. I I told you I try to keep this to a reasonable amount of time. That went fast. We had fun. But I I could go on another hour, but I, I do have one question for you that I'd like you to think about. You mentioned at the beginning that AI is, you know, really beginning to uh, come into our lives in increasingly significant ways. And we've had social media now here. What is your sense of 
the ability of social media to support organizations that are aimed at social good five, 10, 15 years from now? You might not feel like that's a fair question to ask, but I, the futurist in me always tries to put that out there just to give people a sense of what the future might hold when it comes to these tools. And I know things are changing so fast, who knows? But what's your sense of the future, particularly with social media in general? Yeah, it's, it's a great question and one that's evolving as we speak. It's like I said before, the speed at which technology like artificial intelligence moves is mind-boggling. Right, right when you start to catch on to one thing, you're hearing about another thing. And, and I don't think that that's going to slow down for anyone anytime soon. So the advice, particularly on LinkedIn and artificial intelligence that I give to nonprofit leaders is the following. It's two suggestions that I would offer a nonprofit leader to think about that I think are very productive thoughts to consider as, as they think about how they're going to navigate the future that we're all facing. Number one is practical and, the, and number two is philosophical. The practical one is instead of being overwhelmed with artificial intelligence and coming up with an AI strategy, I try to bring it down to more of a practical level and encourage nonprofit leaders to find an AI win. So don't seek an AI strategy, find a, an AI win. What does that mean? Find an AI tool that might maybe help you write executive summaries better or craft a donor outreach letter more efficiently and experiment with it. See what it does, doesn't do, see how it helps you, doesn't, doesn't help you. Because when you find an AI win instead of writing an AI strategy, what you'll find is that you're not only able to learn the technology and how you would use it, but you kind of demystify it in parallel in the process. And so AI has this profound capability to take the laborious nature of the work that we have and all those menial tasks and really allow us to focus on the things that really matter and help us get back to recapturing our passion again. My favorite example here is on LinkedIn, AI is helping recruiters write job descriptions, which is the least sexiest part of a recruiter's job. So the recruiter can focus on having conversations with qualified candidates. So number one, AI win versus AI strategy. The second one, the philosophical one, think about how you want to bring a board member onto your board that has proficiency in technology, social media, or AI, so they can help guide your strategy and your thought process to assess these tools and how you might want to use them to advance your mission in the future. So just to recap, AI win versus AI strategy. And then definitely give your board some capability to help you approach the future as well. Well, you have just heard Joey Zumaya of the Zumaya Group and the head of LinkedIn nonprofits in a wide ranging conversation about AI, about the LinkedIn platform, social media in general and his amazing background uh, from being a homeless child to now doing the great work that he is doing. And Joey, I want to just thank you for being so open and willing to share all that. And you can expect that your LinkedIn request for information <laughs> <laughs> probably going to go up a little bit 
as a result of what you shared here, and I'm, I hope that's all right with you, to all of our guests, let me just thank you for, for tuning in. This is a weekly show. As you previously heard, we've done this for over 180 straight weeks, and we see no end in sight. So I hope you will tune in for future episodes and subscribe to the show. And you can find us everywhere. You can find me on LinkedIn and connect with me on LinkedIn. Let me know what you think about the show. And you can also post a comment or like us on any of the podcast platforms that you go to. We really appreciate your feedback and your engagement. So we'll see you back here again next week. And Joey, thanks. Thank you. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.